Good morning. My name is Ace Catano. I'm a lawyer with the Public Defender's Office. I've been asked here to speak on behalf of ASME Local 148, the Public Defender's Union. We are in abject opposition to 49B. Uh, one thing, first, this is the, the Boise decision is purely about criminalization. It is an Eighth Amendment decision. It does not touch any statutes in that decision, if you read the text, that are not criminal statutes. Second, when joining an amicus brief to the Supreme Court, you have to consider very carefully what legal principles are being addressed that are much larger than simply one statute that might, we might be looking at. We're talking about the fundamental legal principle that will be put forward before the Supreme Court. The principle underlying the Boyce decision is whether it is legal to criminalize someone purely for poverty. We do not want to put that decision in the hands of Justice Kavanaugh. <laughs> We believe that this, uh, the Board of Supervisors should write an amicus brief Thank supporting you. the Boise decision. Thank you. Thank next, you. Next speaker, please. Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about the Board of Supervisors siding with the Trump administration on homelessness, uh, the police commission providing cover for officers shooting another black man uh, a little while ago, but it's relevant because it was uh, part of the hearing at the police commission this past week, uh, an alleged serial sexual predator slash murderer finally being arrested at his home in West Hollywood, and an international news media shout-out for a local organization group that we and other members of Ground Game roll with, which is super cool. How's it going, Bushido? Hey, it's going pretty well. I uh, spent last weekend down in uh, Tucson where I was training uh, Sunrisers uh, for the yeah. Tucson Hub, the Flagstaff Hub, and then the Phoenix Hub, which I'm coordinating at the moment. Nice. Uh, yeah, and also did more of my fundraising training, and it was really interesting. It was good. Uh, Tucson was a nice change of pace. It was uh, kind of amazing to meet people my age who like actually own homes and aren't like multi-gazillionaires. Uh, the house I was like, I stayed with a couple of folks uh, who were in the optical science program over at U of A, and they had this beautiful like three bedroom nice. house with like a massive backyard, and they're like, yeah, we pay seven hundred dollars a month in rent, and like my jaw left a crater on the floor because, <laughs> wow, it was it was kind of it was weird, but I mean, it's also the trade off is you have to live in oh, live in man. Tucson, which actually isn't as bad as it used to be. Yeah. Like I said, it's cooler down there. Uh, and a little bit greener, so hey. yeah, it was uh, it was nice. But we also I talked to the folks who are working for uh, PDI, which is not actually the uh, the voting company that you're used to if you're in California. Uh, but what they're putting hey, forward nice. is a thing called Prop 205, and now Prop 205 is a response to SB. Uh, 1070. And SB 1070 here in Arizona is the show me your papers law that our really terrible government passed several years oh. ago that's like the cops can yeah. pull you over and basically enforce it's immigration the, law. Now it's been pulled back a little bit because Ohio thing, right? Well, he was one of the backers of it. He was really excited by yeah. it. But it, it got pulled back a little bit by the courts because the courts were like, hey, you can't have local cops 
enforcing immigration law. Like, that's just wildly illegal. But what you can do... This is not how jurisdiction Yeah, works. and what you can do is you can have the cops call, like, ICE or uh, Customs and Border Patrol and have them... Or Customs and Border Protection, sorry. Have them come over and, like, check somebody's documentation. So what Prop 205 would do would stop Tucson police from being able to coordinate with ICE and CPB. And it's written in a really, really good way where it doesn't violate CP, where it doesn't violate uh, SB 1070, because SB 1070 has written into it that if a city does not enforce SB 1070, they can lose their funding from the state. So you've got to be really, really careful with the way you're pushing back on that. But the organizers and the folks who wrote this were cognizant of that. Uh, they're going around. Uh, they got it on the ballot, so now it's a door-knocking campaign to get people to vote for it. In a real twist of, like, elected politicians aren't your friend, uh, Tucson is largely Democratic, but none of the elected Democrats in Tucson want to back Prop 205. And they're just kind of being cowards about it. So it's a, a, a good instance of the people in power being more conservative than the voting populace. And it looks like it could pass, and then it will probably have to you know, survive a couple of court challenges. But I'm really excited. I'm going to be taking some folks down there in the next month or two to knock doors and see if we can't get this passed and start getting, like, SB 1070 off the books because it's just terrible. And for being in a border state, you know, it, it's... And especially a state that, like, you know, the Arizona Territory belonged to Mexico for a long period of time. So the fact that we, like, treat people who speak Spanish as though they're somehow foreign is just this terrible blight on our state. And it's something that we really just need to begin flipping. And I think... Arizona, this election cycle could, you know, it, it very solidly go purple, but I think can go blue if we try. So I'm excited for that one. Well, that's a, yeah, that's definitely a positive. And then, uh, based off of your live streams, you've been all over the place this week, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. <laughs> but let's uh, let's get a little update. We're we're going to not go too deep into this because it is obviously an open court case. But on the activist who got popped at the Occupy ICE anniversary. Yeah, so one of our uh, fellow organizers who, uh, I mean, most of the organizing work that he does is with uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, most of the time that I run into him is uh, at, like, protests surrounding, like, the police commissioners uh, or the uh, Civilian Oversight Committee for the sheriff. Um, but, yeah, so one of, one of our fellow activists was uh, arrested, uh, what was it, about um, almost... What was it? Uh, so he, he was arrested three weeks ago. And then the actual incident uh, where the alleged offense took place was on uh, June 22nd. So it, it took the uh, federal authorities almost two months to go and find uh, our fellow organizer and, and arrest him. Uh, and then he was being held where, uh, in, in a federal detention facility without anyone really knowing what was going on or uh, any of the rest of it for, for three weeks. And he finally had his arraignment hearing today. Uh, and around 30 or so folks from the community, uh, well, community and from his family as well, I believe his, his sister and one of his cousins uh, were both there uh, to, you know, Urge the judge to reconsider the the demand for, or, or to to consider favorably the demand from uh, from the defense to uh, grant bond and and allow this organizer to be released. Uh, we showed up in force and uh, you know made the argument against the uh, threat to the community that the the government was uh, alleging that this organizer posed. Uh, and I, I think it speaks volumes when you have a pastor sitting in the front row 
uh, wearing his collar, showing up and, you know, in support of a, an alleged threat to the community, uh, along with, you know, 30 incredibly diverse, uh, a set of 30 incredibly diverse organizers who are all there just to, you know, show solidarity and support for this individual because, you know, we want to see him uh, return to the community and, and no longer held in detention. Uh, but yeah, so he, he, he was uh, arraigned today. Um, a big stack of letters from uh, friends and family were delivered to, to urge the judge to grant bond. Uh, and yeah, so he, he's been, uh, he should be released. If he hasn't already been released by the time we're recording this, uh, he should be released today and hopefully back in downtown uh, before the end of the day. And uh, that is a huge relief for all of us within the organizing community. Uh, this, this was all related to a, uh, the one-year anniversary rally uh, for the Occupy Ice LA movement, which you were, uh, Bushido, you were very uh, heavily involved with a year ago. Yeah, with the, uh, with the, the actual so, encampment, not so much with the anniversary as I, I had moved. Exactly. So yeah, this was this uh, the anniversary uh, rally was to commemorate uh, that encampment and uh, the the actions that had been surrounding uh, the response from the community against what Trump and uh, ICE uh, officials and agents were doing, and, and to try to stop the buses and vans from leaving the facility and going out and doing these kind of immigration raids that were rounding folks up and sending them uh, off to be deported. So uh, this one-year anniversary, it was, a, it was a peaceful protest, but then uh, there was a, uh, a bit of a, an incident that took place uh, where uh, the alleged offense uh, uh, was at the center. And uh, we're, we're not going to go into any, any specific details, but uh, suffice to say that we're, we're uh, thrilled to see that this, this fellow activist is now back out and has been, uh, or should have been by this point, uh, released uh, on bond. And uh, you know the trial is pending in 70 days. And uh, we'll keep you apprised of what is going on and making sure uh, that everyone knows what's up and, and, and can show up to support uh, our, our fellow organizers in this space because it is incredibly important. And uh, just keep in mind that they, the the official the the officers that are out there when you're at a protest uh be wary of of what happens with the, with your interactions be uh as polite and calm as possible as you can when they are uh you know demanding information from you uh because sometimes things can uh things can escalate and and it's uh it's a scary place to be uh when you're being held in uh, federal detention uh, for something that uh, you're pleading not guilty to. Yep. So, yeah, and it's it's something it's, also uh, to note. Like rough. if you're if you're planning on participating or organizing in these kinds of actions, like do that, but have a plan. Like having people who are trained to liaise with the police Absolutely. is very important. And the job of a police liaison isn't to be a sellout that talks to the cops. It's to delay the cops. It's to calm the cops down. It's to give the cops someone to talk to so that they feel like they've got a sense of control. So, you know, talk to the NLG, talk to the ACLU. There are groups of, like, really good lawyers out there who can help prepare you for what it means when you're organizing a direct action, when you're running a direct action, when you're making sure that everyone goes home safe. And 
And that stuff is really, really crucial. You can't obviously control everything the cops do, but you can definitely make a concerted effort to plan and do this kind of stuff intentionally. And with the climate strike coming up, as I'll be talking about more at the end, we're going to be oh, seeing yes. more <laughs> escalation and more direct action and more mass non-cooperation. So as that stuff starts happening and you want to get involved, uh, do it with a plan. Uh, but we'll cover that at the end. So let's go ahead and pivot to our first real story. Uh, in the city of L.A., we've got all the drama around Mitch O'Farrell trying to uh, sweep all of the homeless away uh, with his 4118 revisions. But the LA County Board of Supervisors did not want to be outdone. You know, our five little kings have proved that they are <laughs> cruel and capricious monarchs. So let's talk about what's happening well, in Martin versus Boise. Well, you know, it, I, I'm still going to say there's there's the five little kings and that whole system has to be reformed. <laughs> no, but. no, that's... that's this is true, and, and hopefully that will be changed at some point here, but it was uh, three of them who were being uh, pretty capricious here. Uh, two of them spoke out very uh, authoritatively and uh, uh, passionately uh, in, against this motion, but uh, at the end of the day, the, uh, the reactionary side of the Board of Supervisors carried the, carried the vote, and uh, we're all potentially going to be suffering as a result. Yep. So... Uh, for a little bit of background for folks, this this is all surrounding uh, the court case, uh, the Ninth District Court case of Martin versus the city of Boise up up in Idaho. Um, effectively said that the act of criminalizing, uh, if a city or a municipality or whatever criminalizes the act of of sitting, sleeping, lying on the street when the municipality in question is failing to provide adequate shelter to unhoused residents, uh, that that constitutes a, a form of cruel and unusual punishment. Because um, it, what it really means is that you're, you're punishing people for a situation that is outside of their control. Uh, and that, that is something that we really should not be doing. Um, so on Tuesday, uh, the uh, supervisors, Janice Hahn, uh, it was actually it was Catherine Barger from uh, the Antelope Valley was the one who put forward the motion, and it was seconded by Janice Hahn, uh, who is the uh, the head of the council or president of the council or the uh, the board of commissioners. I forget exactly what her title is. Um, but first among equals, primogenitor. First, <laughs> well, I mean, like her blessing is the president of the city council. Janice Hahn has that role for. Uh, the board of supervisors in uh, which it's it's always is just weird to me that you know we're whenever we go and participate in these meetings uh, it's in the Kenneth Hahn uh, Hall of Administration which is named after her dad uh, because Who, whom she wasn't is, able uh, to follow into the mayorship sad tear yes uh, well I mean I guess maybe she wants maybe she'll do for that run for that later who knows. Um, but anyway, we, we uh, before leading up to the the actual um, board of commissioners meeting, uh, the day of the vote, the L.A. Times editorial board uh, got things kicked off with a bang, coming out uh, denou denouncing what the motion that had been proposed, uh, saying, "quote It doesn't take mad math skills to figure out that if your community has more homeless people sleeping on the streets than it has open shelter beds and apartment, then there's nowhere for them to go. So jailing people for breaking rules against sleeping on the street ends up being cruel and frankly ludicrous." End quote. So, the, like, LA Times editorial board came in extremely accurate. Uh, and frank in their assessment of what was going on. And 
straight up said that the the board of commissioners should not uh, pass this uh, agenda item and should not go go ahead and join in. So the the, the plan is that the uh, Janice Hahn and uh, Catherine Barger wanted the uh, county council, uh, so the lawyers for the county, to go ahead and file an amicus brief. Uh, urging the the Supreme Court to overturn that Ninth Court of Appeals decision, uh, which uh, made it a constitutionally protected act to sleep on the street if your city uh, or county does not provide enough shelter beds. Uh, and so the Board of Supervisors, this motion was to try to get on board uh, with a coalition of other governments uh, from, I believe it's the city or the county of San Diego, and then Sacramento, San Jose, uh, a bunch of California municipalities have been uh, making rumblings about trying to get this uh, Martin v. Boise decision over, overturned at the Supreme Court. And uh, now L.A. County uh, will be joining in with them. Um, during the entire hearing, Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas, who was the, the, he's the fifth and swing vote uh, on the issue, uh, said nothing. He said absolutely nothing. They started out the discussion. Uh, it was weird because they started out by having uh, Sheila Kuehl, who is opposed to the motion, uh, have her comments first before Catherine Barger went on to explain why the motion was being introduced. Uh, and then Hilda Solis came back with a, a, a strong rebuttal of everything that Catherine Barger said. Uh, and then we kind of just launched into it and... It got extremely heated at times, uh, but during the entire uh, process, Mark Ridley Thomas, who was the, the fifth in swing vote because it was two and two uh, for the vote, and he was the only vote that uh, ended up effectively mattering in this because when it's split, that's what ends up happening. I mean, yep. they all matter, but this, his was the deciding vote. Uh, but Services Not Sweeps activist Jed Perry uh, called him out as you know, which side are you going to stand on? Are you going to be on the side of the uh, people who are providing services or are you going to be standing on the side of Trump? And uh, here's what that sounded like. Hi there, uh, Jed Perriott. I'm a volunteer with Streetwatch LA and the Services Not Sweeps Coalition. I'm here to oppose this uh, ridiculous, nonsensical criminaliz criminalization motion. That's exactly what it is. The word criminalization is not in it. Uh, but you talk about tools, and we know exactly what tools you're talking about. Billy clubs, uh, handcuffs, guns, uh, body bags, and cages. That's what you're talking about, because that's what we see in the streets. We're actually in the streets. A lot of us here talking, we know what we're talking about. And we know that what you're talking about is exactly the opposite of what needs to be done. It's the opposite of what Lhasa has told you needs to be done, the opposite of what the UN has said needs to be done, even the LA Times editorial board. Uh, so what's driving this, right? Is Donald Trump driving this? Uh, you know, because to support this motion is to stand with Donald Trump. Uh, I want to ask you, Mark Ridley Thomas. Mark Ridley Thomas, do you want to stand with Donald Trump? You know, your recent tweets kind of indicate maybe you are standing with Donald Trump. Um, so, so tell us, where do you stand? Do you stand with Trump or, you just, or do you stand with us? Do you stand with fascism or do you stand with real solutions? Thank you. Um, oh, his time is up. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Next speaker, please. And so, yeah, that was the only time where Mark Ridley Thomas hopped in and uh, actually said anything. And, and it, was, uh, it was absolutely bizarre to see him just sitting there not making any comments during the entire time. I guess maybe he wanted to just heighten the, a, uh, the, the sense of suspense I, I mean, uh, and I make think, us even more worried about it. Yeah, I think he also knew that like, so. people were coming for him one way or another because he has been stepping on his own tie a lot in the last 
couple of weeks talking oh, yeah. about like the housing crisis, especially when he was like, hey, the Board of Supervisors is looking at a, quote, right to shelter, and then wouldn't tell anyone what right to shelter means, which is really scary because that quickly turns into an obligation to shelter. Uh, and then we also had yes. this weird like cycle where Garcetti and Mark Ridley Thomas and like several other people were like, oh, hey, Donald Trump is right about the housing crisis and we really need to fix this. And like everyone got justifiably mad at them for saying Trump is right about anything, especially when Trump's apparently sending out administration officials to like look at old FAA facilities to turn into like new federal uh, shelters or something like it's still not clear what the Trump administration's plan is um, because they're not telling anyone. But it just, like, Mark Ridley Thomas, people were hoping that he was going to be swayed to voting against this. And I think it just shows his capitulation to power and also his belief that, like, if he wants to run for city council here in the next year, he has to prove that he's doing something about this. And he would rather, quote, he would rather uh, court the votes of NIMBY voters who want to see the tents go away no matter what than he would try and win over progressives who want to see an actual solution to the crisis. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the uh, public comments that really stood out and they actually ended up being quoted in the L.A. Times uh, was uh, Sahar uh, Durali, who is an associate director of litigation and policy at Neighborhood Legal Services of Los Angeles. Uh, and the, the quote was that uh, stating to the board that, quote, the idea that Martin will drain the county's resources or prevent its progress is just not true. This will give municipalities around the county free reign to throw people into containment camps, and we've seen how that's going on the border, end quote. So this, this really echoes back to um, the, the apartheid conditions that are often decried by uh, folks from L.A. Can, and uh, it, it's, it's absolutely on the point. Like, this, these... Uh, policies like 4118 or 40, yeah, 4118, and uh, this new policy coming out of the county, uh, seeking to overturn the Boise decision, uh, that those those steps are all meant to allow for uh, law enforcement officers and uh, you know elected officials to really start putting together like a containment plan uh, to move people around and and lock them up. In uh, mm-hmm. in certain areas within the community, that's I mean that was for a long time that was effectively what Skid Row was. Uh, it was the containment zone. It was an internment zone for our unhoused population within the city of Los Angeles up until the point where everything just completely broke because we have no idea how to manage housing policy in this city. And then suddenly everybody was getting evicted all over the place, and there was just nowhere for people to turn. And that's why we started seeing homeless uh, populations and encampments uh, popping up all across the city is that, you know, people have been just evicted from these homes that they've been in for 15, 20 years. And, you know, if you're on a fixed income and your landlord just keeps raising that rent, what are you going to do? Like your social security uh, check doesn't get bigger just because your landlord tells you that your rent went up. That's, that's just not how it works. Um, so uh, long story short, uh, it was an extremely stressful and uh, very heated uh, series of exchanges. Uh, there, it was very interesting seeing like the, one of the sheriff's deputies, because of course they've got uh, armed officers walking up and down the aisles between the seats, uh, and uh, a woman with a giant placard saying silence during the meeting and all of that, to, and you get shushed constantly. Anytime anybody like groans or does anything, you immediately get shushed 
uh, like you're bad little kindergartners. Um, and Janice Han seems to relish that. Yeah, we don't want like a sudden outburst <laughs> of democracy in a, a meeting. Yeah, of the so uh, one of, there there were some pretty poignant outbursts from uh, the community uh, that were not received well by uh, by uh, Supervisor Han, um, and also not by uh, the the sheriff's deputies that were walking around. Uh, one of the uh, activists who was standing next to me uh, chose to exercise her right to free speech by flipping off. Uh, Janice Hahn while she was talking uh, only to have a sheriff's deputy say no you can't do that you need to do one of these two pre uh, prescribed uh, gestures that allow for you to show support or disapproval of this raise the roof motion or thumbs down motion those are the only things that you're supposed to be doing uh, meanwhile like six rows in front of us and a little bit over to the right uh, there was one of the gadflies uh, who is a frequent uh, you know, tester of all of the boundaries of what you can get away with for free speech in both city council and the board of supervisors, uh, had both middle fingers up pointing at uh, Janice Hahn, and uh, they didn't say anything to him. So, you know, not exactly an, an equal application of these rules. But anyway, uh, long story short, Mark Ridley Thomas ended up uh, voting uh, for the proposal, and in a statement following the vote, he said, quote, I'm simply fed up. The status quo is untenable. We need to call this what it is, a state of emergency, and refuse to resign ourselves to a re reality where people are allowed to live in places not fit for human habitation. I refuse to accept this as our new normal. So it's, it's interesting that he would say that because I, I actually had a, uh, a great exchange with, uh, um, with one of the, the, the lawyers from uh, the Legal Aid Foundation uh, earlier on at the, at the start of the meeting, uh, getting a couple of points about what was going on. And the fact of the matter is that the, the Martin decision in no way interferes with the city's ability to provide mental health and other services to people who are unhoused. Martin only limits the role of law enforcement in that provision of services. So uh the it, it, the whole premise of this uh, motion was just fundamentally flawed. Another thing worth pointing out is that the ruling explicitly allows jurisdictions to take actions to address public health and other issues like fire safety. Uh, apparently, there's a, a letter that's been floating around that says that this decision interferes with jurisdictions' ability to address fire safety, and that's just not true. Um, a third point is that if the county comes out in favor of this, which they did, uh, they will be backtracking on years of leadership and largely successful work to get cities in L.A. County to move away from criminalization and toward housing. Because we know, and it's been shown time and time and time again, everywhere that it's tried, criminalization of the unhoused does not solve a homeless crisis. All it does is make it more difficult for people to get back up on their feet and uh, you know into housing. The solution to homelessness is providing housing first. That's how it works. Whether that housing has wraparound services or if it is just you know some kind of an in, an interim you know uh, shared housing or any of these other options that are are being discussed uh, is is you know that's the, you're getting into the minutia there. The point is that you need to provide people with housing first and not criminalize them. Because if you criminalize them, all you're doing is making the situation worse. And the county that just that didn't get through, I mean, uh, Sheila Kuhl and Hilda Solis get it, but the rest of them, they don't. 
Well, and it, it's a weird one, too, because, you know, the, the county just voted to not mm-hmm. do the new jail construction and instead to build the mental health facility. And we're still waiting to see what that's actually going to mean. But they've kind of sort of been making a pivot towards less terrible solutions. Um, they're still very wishy-washy on what the details are actually going to be. But they've done a couple of things that, like, seem to be steps in the right direction. And the county has been called, you know, the county board has been called the most progressive <laughs> governmental body in the state of California. And I don't think... I, I don't think that's completely incorrect, you know? Uh, at the same time, this kind of decision is yeah. really going to muddy the waters as to what that's actually going to mean because if we're building a mental health facility where we're basically forcing people to go in there and be kept under lock and key away from society, exactly. then it's not much different than a jail. And the effect is basically the same. And we will see that continued, like criminalization leading to more people being unhoused and having a harder time getting a job, having a harder time getting an apartment because like they'll run a background check on you before they let you sign a lease or before they hire you. And it locks a lot of people out of being able to move yep. up economically in this market. Uh, it's also interesting, you know, I played the, that clip of Ace uh, giving his testimony at the County Board of Supervisors and the LA County Public Defenders Union, uh, which is Ask Me Local 148, which just so you know, 148 on the LAPD like list of radio codes is resisting arrest. So our public defenders union is officially the code for resisting arrest, which I think is great. They didn't want to go with 187. That would have been a little bit too spicy. Uh, but it, they also released a statement today saying that they do not support yeah. this move by the County Board of Supervisors, and they are county employees. Like, the L.A. County, uh, they're employed by the county, they work for the county, they're basically, you know, the defender's level that's the same as the district attorney's office that Jackie Lacey yes. runs so absolutely terribly. So we know that, like, the people who work on this day in and day out understand what good solutions would look like and that this is not a good solution. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see where this goes through the courts because as ace pointed out this could potentially land in the roberts court and or sorry not the roberts court i'm sorry yeah the, but with yeah it is the Ra- with roberts kavanaugh court the roberts and, court with uh, kavanaugh and Gorsuch. yes with brett kavanaugh great people to have making this decision yep exactly so we have a very we have a very conservative supreme court and even outside of a very su- conservative Supreme Court just on the right side, even the left side of the bench is still more conservative than a lot of people want to admit. Uh, And they tend to side with the police and they tend to side with the state when they say incarceration is the solution. So I don't know what options we're going to have here other than like unelecting a bunch of these folks and making sure that Mark Ridley Thomas does not end up on LA City Council. Uh, I also want to know what's up with Sebastian. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I also want to know what's up with Sebastian. We haven't heard he from him for a bit. You know, is he nope. is he still teaching at USC? He got fired. Uh, what happened to that guy? Um, I did you know, it that, just yeah. yeah, just yeah. random questions that that pop up. Uh, you know, and isn't it great that like you can grift all of this money and lie and cheat and steal and suffer no ill consequences if you come from an LA political dynasty? So yes. that's some food for thought. Um, but yeah, let's. Uh, and it, we're going to be covering a lot of this, and we'll probably as more details come out, you know, be tying this into the whole Trump administration push because, like I said, details on that are still very, very light. But let's move on to the bulk of our program now, which we haven't done a lot of cops in a while, but today we're doing a lot of cops. Cops, y'all. So let's first talk about the L.A. Police Commission. And they had a ruling on a use of force against Albert Ramon Dorsey. uh, And you can fill us in on the details of that and the unfortunate 
predictable decision that they came to as to whether or not murdering this man was within policy. Yeah, so uh, Albert Ramon Dorsey was uh, 30 years old, a black man. He was naked in the shower at the 24-hour fitness located on Sunset and Ivar, where he was a member, uh, had an active membership, uh, when employees at the gym called the LAPD on him. Um, two officers, one a woman, approached Ramon in the shower, uh, again, where he was naked, and there is video footage of all of this. I urge you to be super uh, aware that it is yeah, super heavy, very troubling. Super heavy content warning on that, like... The video's yeah. pretty graphic. It's very disturbing, yeah. and it's not for the faint of heart. And also, I don't want to like fall into the trap of like using violence against black bodies as a way to just make the point here. But if you do want to see with your own eyes, that video is out in the wild, and you can go find it. Yeah, so uh, the officers repeatedly told them to get dressed, and apparently... Uh, when it wasn't being done fast enough uh, for their liking, they escalated the situation. And having watched it, that's exactly what was happening, is they just were uh, being impatient with him uh, and the amount of time it was taking for him to dry off and get dressed. Uh, so as seen in the heavily edited video that was released by the LAPD, both officers' body cameras mysteriously fell off, apparently in a struggle. Uh, at the exact same time, uh, and seconds later, Hollywood Division Officer Edward uh, Agdepa, serial number 41000, fired fatal shots into uh, Albert Ramon Dorsey. Uh, despite assertions by the police that Ramon was tased first, an independent autopsy has shown that he was not tased. Uh, Ramon has been or had just moved back to Los Angeles or had just moved to Los Angeles, rather, two weeks earlier to pursue a career in music. He wasn't the first black man killed by police in L.A. after gym employees called them. Uh, in 2017, Dennis Todd Rogers, who had just recently also moved to L.A. to pursue acting, was murdered by L.A. sheriff's deputies outside of the Ladera Heights location on Slauson for, quote, being there too long. Uh, for the last 35 weeks, starting on what would have been Ramon's uh, 31st birthday, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles has been picketing outside 24-hour fitness in response to these two murders and uh, in response to 24-hour fitness's refusal to adhere to these simple demands. Number one, issue a public statement affirming the value of black lives. Number two, immediately establish and conduct cultural competency training for all employees. Three, develop alternatives to calling the police and make sure all employees accept the procedures. So on Tuesday, the police commission uh, voted unanimously to rule that Agdepa's shooting of Ramon was out of policy due to the consistent pressure that you know Ramon's family and uh, activists from Black Lives Matter LA and our allies uh, and their allies have been have been uh, applying to the commission uh, and you know demanding justice. Uh, Chief Moore did try to express sorrow for the family and concern about the way that Officer Agdepa had acted, and he recommended to the board that they find the murder to be in policy. Um, Moore ultimately does get to decide what, if any, discipline the officer will be facing. Uh, Chief? Uh, good afternoon, Commissioners. As is uh, posted on the agenda, I, uh, this portion of my remarks are about significant events that has occurred in this last week, as well as uh, statements relative to instances of crime. Uh, and our personnel strengths. Uh, but before I begin that, uh, let me uh, frame my remarks by uh, remarks I made to the Dorsey family, the mom and the sister that were here earlier, privately, I'll say publicly. Uh, and that is that the circumstances 
of, of Mr. Dorsey's death is both tragic and sad. And you have my condolences uh, as chief, as well as uh, a member of this organization and just uh, a father and an individual. The, I'm, I'm sorry for his loss. Uh, the department seeks to resolve instances such as this and the circumstances of this uh, peacefully without having to resort to force. Uh, we look to provide uh, that we hire people of the highest character and capabilities and ability to be problem solvers and to negotiate and work their way through difficult circumstances. We provide them with tools and training. And we also give them uh, instruction and, and guidance as to expectations. And when mistakes are made, there are consequences. And while I am prohibited by state law from talking about matters of discipline involving police officers, uh, I am uh, mindful that those consequences, uh, when mistakes are made, uh, need to evaluate the uh, a number of factors in deciding whether something becomes a matter of discipline. And I, in this instance, will do so as well with a great deal of attention. Uh, uh, and uh, so just for a little bit of context here, a few months ago, uh, the murder of Grishario Mack, who was uh, a black man who was gunned down by LAPD, in the middle of the crowded Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Mall, was uh, his killing was found to have been out of policy, yet Moore has stated publicly, uh, Chief Moore has stated publicly that he doesn't think the officers did anything wrong, despite the fact that it was ruled to be out of policy, and has refused to discipline them. So uh, let Chief Moore know that he's wrong to be doing this. Uh, demand that he fire Officer Edward Agdepa for the murder of Albert Ramon Dorsey and also fire Officers Ryan Lee and Martin Robles for the murder of Grishario Mack. The number to call is 213-486-0150. Again, that's 213-486-0150. Uh, this is how... This is basically the only kind of opportunity that we have at this point to try to uh, push Chief Moore and the LAPD to actually have some accountability is just public outcry. So please uh, do call and, and, and urge, uh, demand rather, that Chief Moore uh, actually go through and, and fire officers for literally killing black men. Uh, and having that be, you know, killing black men out of policy. I, I mean, it, it's absurd that they have any policy that just allows them uh, when they're in any of these altercations. Because literally, if they would have just waited five minutes, ten minutes for him to get out. Like, we were talking about this before the recording. There was nowhere for him to go. There's only one exit to the restroom. Like, he wasn't going to disappear. He would have to come out. And he was getting dressed. It's not like he was like, hey, I live here now. He was just like, give me time yeah. to get dressed. And, like, his attitude wasn't great, I guess. Like, if, that, if you're going to criticize him for something, like, he kind of copped an attitude with the cops. But, like, you're allowed yeah, to do that to and fair, not The cops die. also copped an attitude with him, like, yeah? from the outset. Yeah, if you watch the video, you see the officers, like, one of them, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Agdapa, like, literally just decides, Jesus Christ, like, as he's walking in, uh, or rather, as he's asking uh, Ramon, demanding that Ramon get dressed, uh, when he doesn't immediately, like, uh, assume, assume a role of subservience that then Agdapa just is, is already exasperated and starts slamming shower doors shut, 
uh, for no apparent reason. And it's just like the, the entire thing, it was just so, there was so much needless uh, escalation through the yeah. entire process. And, 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 you know, if you're the person with the gun, even if you're shorter, which the, if you watch the video, the uh, LAPD spokesperson goes to lengths uh, and great pains to explain how uh, the fact that Ramon was a, a large man and that both officers are not, uh, that, you know, that, that needs to be considered. It's like, look, if you're, if you're short and you're confronting a large person who is, you know, naked, uh, and you still feel that you are, uh, you know, in a position of, of not dominance, but despite the fact that you've got a taser on one hip and a nine millimeter on the other, uh, why don't you just wait for backup? Like, why don't you just wait for some more folks to show up or, you know, just wait for the situation to deescalate rather than, uh, deciding to uh, force an altercation that ends up uh, with shots fired. Yeah, and this um, is but, this is the yeah. exact type of stuff that we're talking about when we say we want more de-escalation training. And this is something that AB 392 is supposed to address, where cops are supposed to be taught about de-escalation. That's supposed to be their first go-to in their skill set is to de-escalate a situation, not escalate it. These officers unnecessarily escalated. Again, this this wasn't a situation where somebody needed to die. Like, if there was going to be some sort Absolutely. of police intervention here, they could have just waited for him to get dressed, escorted him out of the building, told him, we're going to get them to file a restraining order on you and you can't come back here again, and, like, solve the problem that way. And, it, and also, when it comes to this man and a lot of people who lose their lives at the hands of the cops, if we had the social services to give them the mental health care and the health care and the housing that they need to lead stable lives, we wouldn't be in this situation. Like, he didn't go in there to do anything nefarious. 100%. He went in there to listen to some rap music and take a shower. Like, something that any human being should be allowed to do without getting shot. Yeah. No, that's... The I literally do not know what else to say other than yeah. there's no fucking reason why he should have been shot for this. Yeah. None at all. So, uh, yeah. So just if, if you want to you follow up on more of what's going on with this, uh, to get more info on what Black Lives Matter Los Angeles uh, is doing in terms of their campaigns, uh, go ahead and email. Uh, the address is email blmla at gmail.com. Again, that is email blmla at gmail.com. Uh, or go online and find them on social media. Uh, the Twitter handle is at BLMLA. Uh, and on Instagram, it is BLM Los Angeles. Uh, all one word. So, yeah, uh, this is incredibly important work. Um, it, it's th they, they need all the support you can give. Uh, allies are always appreciated. And, uh, yeah, it, it's... Oh man, our our justice system is so fucked up. And and so this is up. you know this is uh, on top of the weekly vigils that BLMLA is holding at Jackie Lacey's office every Wednesday. Absolutely. Which yesterday yeah. was the hundredth week they've been out there. So this is almost two solid years of organizing and consistent vigils, and consistent vigils that have applied pressure to the city that cost Charlie Beck arguably his job, or at least got him to retire early, that have resulted in real change. You know, not just AB 392, but also SB 1491, which relates to police records. Those came about because of pressure campaigns and organizing campaigns from Black Lives Matter. Uh, if you are... 
uh, melanin challenged such as myself, you can also hook up with White People for Black Lives, uh, which is the Standing Up for Racial Justice affiliate in Los Angeles. They do some really great work, not just on police violence and accountability, but also working on the housing crisis and the violence that our unhoused neighbors are facing. So there are ways for you to get involved and there are ways for you to get on the ground and get doing stuff. And if nothing else, you know, make a donation to Black Lives Matter LA, uh, show up in solidarity, share their stuff on the social media, like that kind of signal boosting is really low bandwidth, but it can really, really help drive the narrative. And that ties us into our next story, uh, one that we have been following for a while, one that local journalist uh, Jasmine Kanick has been following for a very long while and really, really been just like hounding this story. Uh, But Ed Buck, who is a big Democratic donor and a friend of those in power, um, he was finally arrested, um, not because of a death, which is weird. Like, this story takes some weird twists and turns, but we do know that two men lost their lives in his apartment from a methamphetamine overdose. Uh, It appears that he was up to his same very weird and twisted uh, stuff, but let's talk about this, and I am going to throw, like, a content warning up at the top of this one. Uh, This is really heavy and really disturbing behavior we're talking about uh, that involves uh, uh, sexual content and drug use, uh, and death. Um, so just be aware, like the fact that it's taken this long for Ed Buck to be arrested is an absolute failure of our criminal legal system. Absolutely. So on Tuesday, the office of the Los Angeles County District Attorney, Jackie Lacey, released a statement that said that, uh, Ed Buck had been arrested and charged with operating a drug house and providing methamphetamines to a 37 year old man who suffered an overdose at Buck's West Hollywood apartment last week. Um, these preliminary charges were state level. And just for a little bit of context, this guy who they're calling Joe Doe uh, in the court filings, he was apparently uh, injected with a methamphetamines uh, to overdose levels or what he was concerned might be overdose levels twice. He was injected once and then like went to the hospital to get treated uh, and then ended up back in Buck's uh, apartment on September 11th where he was injected a second time. Um, and then apparently was restrained from being able to leave the apartment when he wanted to seek medical attention uh, and eventually managed to to break free of the apartment and get out and seek help. And uh, probably the only reason why this man is still alive is because he was able to do that. Uh, this is a horrifying story. Uh, and it's making, you know, this was the front page news on the New York Times this morning. Like, this is a big deal. And uh, it, like you said, Bushido, it is absolutely shocking that it has taken this long because, uh, you know, the the death of Jamel Moore uh, back in 2017 should have been enough. Like, there, there were enough uh, hypodermic syringes that were found in Ed Buck's home that, there's I don't know if you have a dead body in your home surrounded by hypodermic needles uh, and a bunch of sex toys. I don't understand why the officers wouldn't at least like detain you and do like a search of your premises. But uh, somehow uh, it was found to have just been uh, an accidental overdose. 
Um, but today, anyway, getting back to the, the current events, it was revealed that Buck is actually being charged at the federal level in connection uh, with not just what happened last week, but also the 2017 death of Jamel Moore. And this is a huge, huge win for the family and friends of the victim, um, specifically uh, his, his mother, uh, who uh, Letitia Wilson, has been, uh, like, she and Jasmine Kanick have basically been out there uh, carrying the torch for Jamel Moore, like there, there's, there's just absolutely shocking uh, content in uh, in Jamel's uh, diary describing the process that uh, Buck apparently went through to uh, get him addicted to methamphetamine, and you just there's the entire spiral that led to Jamel's death. Uh, is documented in the, in this uh, in this notebook in this diary, and it but it was not found to be compelling enough evidence by by Jackie Lacey. Uh, twice, uh, the the sheriff's department investigated briefly and was like, "Nah, this is just an accident." And then you know another year later, when uh, 50, 55 year old uh, Timothy Dean was found to have overdosed in the same apartment on the same drugs. Uh, they were like, oh, well, maybe we're going to, you know, the next month after that, then they decided to reopen that investigation into Jamel Moore's death yep. and still found, nope, not enough compelling evidence here. We're just going to wait until uh, apparently the third body uh, almost happened. And, that, uh, and that, fortunately, doesn't even, again, that doesn't even address the questions about another earlier death that may or may not be connected to yes. Buck that never got investigated. Like the cops just Absolutely. showed up, so, found a dead guy in a car, dead from a methamphetamine overdose in Buck's neighborhood and never asked any questions about it. Just let it slide. Asked, yep. Yep. So here's what prosecutors wrote in court documents that were released to the public earlier this week. Quote, from his home in a position of power, Buck manipulates his victims into participating in his sexual fetishes. These fetishes include supplying and personally administering dangerously large doses of narcotics to his victims, end quote. And it's worth pointing out here that every single one of these victims was black and gay. This is like... Well, that's that's There's, something I want. Mm -hmm. That's something I want to point out is the way that Be Beck, or, sorry Beck, the way that Buck <laughs> is able to lure these victims in is with generosity. He is well known in the West Hollywood community for offering people who are down and out a place to sleep, a place to crash. In fact, Jamel Moore he paid for a plane ticket from Houston to L.A. so that Jamel Moore could stay with him. This is a weird weird kind of um, uh, pathology that he has going on here, but it's also how he was able to cloak himself in sort of a good guy disguise because people saw him as very giving, as this rich white guy who would allow homeless black men to stay with him. He would give them a roof over their head. But then there was this darker undercurrent of him wanting sex and wanting to inject people with methamphetamine. And we saw this in the the second death that was that happened at Ed Buck's apartment, where the victim was a former uh, porn actor, and it, there were some questions about what their relationship had been and if they had been in in some sort of a sexual relationship for a long while, but. For a lot of people that knew Buck personally in the social scene, they just thought that he was being very nice to people who needed help. It was only on the streets and sort of the whisper networks that talked about why he was actually engaging in this type of behavior. And I think it also, like, 
One thing I want to point out that uh, really stood out to me in the the uh, court drama surrounding his his arraignment was when he was uh, slapped with a four million dollar bail, and the prosecution was oh, like, yeah. "We don't know where his money came from. Like he has no source of income. He has like." He shouldn't have any assets, and yet he somehow has very significant wealth and a very nice place in West Hollywood. And so the prosecution even went so far as to say, like, hey, if he posts this bail, we should be able to dig into his finances and figure out where this money's coming from because we don't know. Yeah, so basically what that the insinuation behind that is that they're concerned that it might be related to drug trafficking, potentially. Uh, and... I mean, it's this whole thing is just it's so screwed up. So one of the one of the things that that came out in some of the coverage of this was that uh, Jasmine Kanick had uh, established she she's not only an activist but also uh, acts as a spokeswoman for um, for Jamel Moore's family uh, in dealing with this with press surrounding uh, Ed Buck. Yeah, and she made contacts with a number of the neighbors and uh, she and a bunch of other activists from uh, both Black Lives Matter LA and uh, the LGBTQ uh, activist scene in in West Hollywood specifically uh, went around and passed out flyers that had Buck's picture on them uh, to areas where they thought that he might be uh, cruising to try to pick up these uh, vulnerable young men and you know, basically, it had a picture in of Ed Buck and was like, "Do not go home with him. He does this. He, he is a he is a threat to the uh, black gay community." Uh, and and you know, be aware. One of the neighbors in his apartment complex, and it's a pretty nondescript apartment complex over on Laurel. Uh, they, this neighbor, uh, basically kept seeing these vigils and everything else, and hearing these stories about what was happening. Uh, upstairs in their building and the you know because the buck uh i actually was at a protest or at a vigil rather at um at his home uh in front of his home uh back in uh december last year uh following the death of timothy dean and you know there there were these outcries from the community to to see something actually happened. Uh, Buck's apartment, like the windows are all blacked out. You couldn't see anything that was going on. Uh, we think he was home while we were there, but you know, we don't really know. Um, but yeah, so he's got that upstairs apartment. And then one of his neighbors uh, kept seeing him coming, he, him bringing these young black men uh, home over and over, like multiple times a week and uh, started making sure that Jasmine was aware of this in order to, to try to, you know, actually affect some change with this. But it's just people knew that this man was a predator living in this home, operating out of this home with impunity and were demanding action and nothing was done. Yeah. And uh, related to that, Jasmine had an, an incredibly poignant quote that was uh, run actually twice in the L.A. Times this week. Uh, where in the last couple of days where she said, quote, like America, the LGBTQ community is divided along racial lines. And that is reflected in West Hollywood. It is still not as welcoming to people of color and specifically to those who are black. It took outside forces to bring change, end quote. So this is like, as you pointed out, the, the situation with his bail 
set at $4 million and the potential, you know, like, I don't know, Rico investigation or something that might go into where does this money come from if he's able to pony up $4 million. Like It is a, there's a lot of questions. This guy has an incredibly shady history uh, where he, you know, he used to be a, a GOP activist and fundraiser. Uh, and was involved with a repeal campaign back in Arizona. And then uh, I, I forget when he switched to become a Democrat and started becoming a, uh, a fundraiser uh, in the Democratic Party in California. Um, but that happened at some point, and he's made a ton of donations to a number of different candidates uh, and people who are currently elected uh, to office. Uh, I know that your senator in Arizona, Kristen Cinema. Uh, was actually one of his uh, bigger recipients of donations. Um, and she had given that money away to either a charity or something. I forget exactly what, but yeah. um, all of these folks are, are immediately, uh, well, I mean, even a year ago, they were trying to uh, dump any cash that was associated with Ed Buck. And, and um, I forget who, if it was, which candidate, maybe it was Karen Bass. I'm, I'm forgetting exactly who, but there was one of the, uh, one of the local representatives, uh, elected officials rather, um, who had received money when they found out that they had received money from Ed Buck, uh, donated the money to Jamel's, Jamel Moore's family uh, as a sign of like, no, we do not uh, accept any kind of uh, contribution from somebody like this. Like it is yeah. uh, anathema to anyone who wants to do anything in any kind of progressive circles to have uh, any association with this guy. I was surfing around, follow the money earlier today, trying to see if I could um, dig up a little bit of like fundraising uh, history on Ed Buck. And it's a little bit weird because one of the things that Ed Buck does is he himself doesn't donate a lot of money, but he bundles money to be donated to candidates. So that was one of the questions that first arose because I believe he bundled money for like Ted Lieu and a lot of people who are prominent Democrats, not yeah. just in California, but across the nation. So he was the money man. He was the connector. He was kind of the networking center. And being a, a bundler is basically something you do for a campaign where you get a bunch of big money donors together. You have them all coordinate their money and make a big donation. It's a good way for a campaign to kind of refill their coffers because campaigns are always burning through cash. So being able to count on a big cash injection and having somebody who can arrange that for you makes you very, very valuable. Um, and it's one way he got invited to a lot of parties that he met a lot of people who were very important. Ed Buck himself uh, ran for the West Hollywood City Council at one point. Didn't do yes, very he did. well. He, he didn't win. Nope. And uh, that was kind of the end of his political career. Um, but even at that time, like nobody was asking these questions, even though there was this underground whisper network going on about like what he was doing. And some of that is, is referenced in G Gamel Moore's diaries, which uh, Jasmine Kanick got the uh, permission of the family to release. And if you do get the chance, I'll go ahead and post links to some of her stories on it. Again, like this is really hard stuff to read and it's really dark. Yes. But if you want to see just what white power looks like, this is a good look at it and one where a lot of people willfully, I want to say, had their eyes closed to what was happening because it wasn't convenient and because it was much easier to just give Ed Buck the benefit of the doubt than the people that he was victimizing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so let's go on <sighs> to our last story of the day, which this one's a little bit happier. Yeah. You know, as happy yes, as it can it be <laughs> that we live in a surveillance state. <laughs> You know that's that's kind of the, that, you know that's kind of the the double edge to this sword. Like on the one edge, 
We've got like uh, badass activists. Uh, yeah. In, in the form of stop LAPD spying, keeping LAPD accountable, giving us a full accounting of what the surveillance state looks like, what the the public private partnerships look like about how data driven data driven policing is harming our communities, and on the other edge is the fact that those things exist at all. And we have to spend our time doing this. So uh, let's go ahead and talk about this story in The Guardian, which I do have to say, uh, we're talking about The Guardian piece here, but The Atlantic had a really good write-up on Hamid Khan, who basically runs Stop LAPD Spying out of Skid Row. Uh, There's really, really amazing work being done here, and it's finally getting national press attention, especially as more and more police departments uh, are trying to adopt data-driven policing and algorithmic policing and pick up more techno solutions sold by terrible, horrible, no good, very bad organizations like Palantir. Uh, but yeah, let's Palantir, talk about this yeah. Guardian piece. <laughs> yeah, so on Wednesday this week, The Guardian published a piece by Ben Tarnoff entitled, quote, to decarbonize, we must decomputerize. Why we need a Luddite revolution, end quote. So the piece focuses on the activist response to the ever-encroaching role of big data and omnipresent data collection systems in our day-to-day lives. So let's just go ahead and read a couple of paragraphs from the middle of the piece to really highlight the shout-out that the uh, Stop LAPD Spying Coalition got alongside a bunch of other activist groups from this article. Quote, Big tech companies talk incessantly about how AI and digitization will bring a better future. In the present tense, however, putting computers everywhere is bad for most people. It enables advertisers, employers, and cops to exercise more control over us, in addition to helping heat the planet. Fortunately, there are latter-day Luddites working to stem the tide. Community groups like the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition are organizing to shut down algorithmic policing programs. A growing campaign to ban government use of facial recognition software has won important victories in San Francisco and Somerville, Massachusetts, while workers at Amazon are calling for the company to stop selling such software to law enforcement. And in the streets of Hong Kong, protesters are developing techniques for evading the algorithmic gaze using lasers to confuse facial recognition cameras and cutting down, quote, smart lampposts equipped with monitoring devices, which, um, and and end of the the quote here, I was just going to point out, like, there's an awesome video clip that was running around Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, of the Hong Kong protesters with, like, a hacksaw literally chopping down a surveillance lamppost and just like stomping on the cameras. Uh, and I gotta say, like that, that was, uh, that filled me with a bunch of uh, tingly good feelings uh, to see the, uh, the eye of the police being, uh, you know, uh, shut in that way. So <laughs> that, that, was, uh, that was fun. Um, but yeah, it, it's the, like you said, Hamid and the rest of the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. Uh, which you know, ground game is a is a part of. We've got. Uh, I, I've been to a couple of the meetings, and I routinely uh, show up to support them in their anti drone uh, and anti uh, surveillance state protests at the police commission and everywhere else. Uh, it's amazing. Like once you start like really diving into this work, you're like, hey, I keep seeing the same people at all of the same things. Huh? Maybe I should go hang out with them at some of their meetings. And you do, and it's awesome because there are awesome people doing amazing work. And uh, Hamid and the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition is exactly that. So highly recommend y'all reach out and uh, get involved with them if you can. Uh, they meet at LA Can. 
uh, in the middle of Skid Row, which is a little bit difficult for some folks to get to. Unfortunately, it's not close to any mass transit. Um, well, actually, there's a there's a bus line that runs near-ish. Sort of-ish. Um, it's it almost, it's almost like they to, so. plan to not bring mass transit down Skid Row. Right? Almost like they purposely <laughs> oh. deprive that community <sighs> of the basic parts of society. But I did want to add on just everything. as... Yeah. yeah, just as as a little bit of self-promotion here. Uh, I also interviewed uh, Hamid and Jamie Garcia from Stop LAPD Spying uh, like yeah. a year ago. Like, it was a while ago. Great, uh, but it was a really good interview. You can check that out on our SoundCloud. I'll throw the link in the description. Uh, but it, again, like you can help them out with a donation. You can help them out by signal boosting. Like this, if you don't live in LA, don't worry. This technology is coming to your city too. Uh, LA, you know, as, as Kendall likes to say, and I like to steal from her, you know, I'm from California, I'm from the future. And that is very true when it comes to policing, unfortunately. You know, LAPD was the first city in the nation to have a SWAT team. Uh, we were one of the first cities in the nation to take up data-driven policing after New York. And we really ran with it more than New York ran with it, especially with Silicon Beach here. We have uh, really explored how far you can push the envelope with turning over policing and using data to just crush civil rights without anyone noticing. The police are trying to sell it as all about efficiency and about directing their resources correctly and don't want to talk about the fact that we give hundreds of millions of dollars a year to companies like Palantir that isn't only working in our cities, they're also working on the border. Like These are the companies that also sell social media spying toolkits to government agencies like the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI. Like. Their finger is in every pot when it comes to the surveillance state. And if we really want to have an active and vibrant society where you can engage in political organizing, where you can engage in mass direct action, civil disobedience, and mass non-cooperation, this sort of technology is meant to stop us from doing this. And this ties directly into the story that we were talking about earlier today with the uh, Occupy ICE anniversary. You know, everyone who was there at the camp, we know that the government's got a file on us. Like, we know that our faces are on camera, that they know oh, yeah. who we are. There was no way to avoid that. Like, when I was at camp, my phone was significantly slower than when I walked a half mile away from camp. You know, I tried very hard not to use Facebook and Twitter and even check my email. And there were days where I would just leave my phone at home because I knew that every bit of data that went from my phone out into the universe was being sucked up by a stingray. And if they weren't collecting the yep. data because I was going through something like Signal, they were collecting the metadata as much as they could. And that stuff happens everywhere. You, We've found out from lawsuits on a federal level and on a state level, the police departments will sometimes just put a stingray in the trunk of a car, turn it on, and drive drive around the city and suck up everyone's data. And this helps not only with their <sighs> policing and targeting of where they're sending police, but it en enables what we call parallel construction, where something like um, the NSA will illicitly collect data that can be used in a domestic prosecution. But the NSA isn't allowed to submit that evidence into the record because the NSA is not allowed to collect information on American citizens on American soil. So what they do is they give yep. the data to the DEA or to the local sheriff's department or to the local prosecutor, and then they make up a story about where that data came from, and they effectively lie to the judge. One of the court cases that's been working its way uh, through the federal court system for a while is to try and stop this. And the argument that the government is making is that they have a vested interest in literally lying to judges. Like, we literally have a criminal legal system that says that the judge and the jury, the people who need the truth to come to a decision, can be lied to by the government because it's more convenient for the government. 
And these are really disturbing trends that are going to keep going forward. You know, if, if the Trump folks win another four years in the White House, they're going to go all out with this because they know that's the only way to maintain their power is by crushing the power of people to organize against it. So uh, do check out these articles. Do stay up to date with Stop LAPD Spying. Also stay up to date with Ground Game. Uh, our, our website is getting cooler and cooler and cooler. We're, we're getting some... Uh, fancy new features in there. Uh, we'll put the link in there. And you can also, like, I'm now running our action network, so if you want to get emails from us about stuff you can show up at, ways to get involved, go ahead and follow the bit.ly link I'm going to put below. Uh, give us your data. We're only going to sell it to the worst people. <laughs> like, we'll only sell it to the absolute worst. I'm just kidding. We won't sell your data. Uh, but we, we will definitely use it to get you out to yell at city council members, at county board of supervisors, at corrupt landlords, yes. at all the best people to yell at. So if you're sitting in your house like, I haven't yelled at someone for a bit. Get with Ground Game. We'll totally fix that for you. Uh, so moving on to some oh, yeah. events that you should uh, you should know about on the, the calendar. Obviously, we're releasing this Friday morning. So what the hell are you doing? Why are you listening to this? Why aren't you out at the climate strike? Or if you're on the bus on your <laughs> way to there. the climate strike, uh, as soon as Good this job. is over, you know, get to striking. Uh, but remember, this is going to be a week of global action from Friday, September 20th to Friday, September 27th. There's going to be stuff happening all across the globe. This is going to be a massive show. And I got to say, as a Sunrise organizer, we have more plans for more actions and more escalation because we oh, know that it's not going yeah. to be everyone shows up tomorrow and we get the climate action we want. Like This is the first step in a long road up the mountain. But we're going to get to the top of that mountain. It's going to take a lot of work, though. And the more people we can get in the street, the more people we can get active, the better things are going to be. Uh, there's some good research out there that says that any social justice movement that can uh, win the, the active participation of 3.5% of the citizens of a given nation has never been defeated. In the U.S., that's about 11 million people. So get out there, be part of the 11 million. Let's get to fixing yeah. this. So speaking of, uh, of climate stuff, we're going to have to make sure that we touch on uh, the SB1 situation uh, as well as the PG&E settlement next week when we talk about stuff. But uh, yep. we kind of ran out of time here today. So we'll be sure that we talk about that next week. But uh, another event that's happening in the coming days is that uh, rumor has it that 4118, uh, this bill that is exactly related to what we're talking about at the start of the podcast, uh, this Martin v. Boise decision, like you know, uh, because of Martin v. Boise, um, Los Angeles Municipal Code 4118 needs to be uh, changed because it's unconstitutional as it's currently written. So uh, Mitch O'Farrell presented a, a, a plan to change it. Uh, and it turns out that instead of just changing it to make it comply with the court ruling, he made it real, real bad, as we discussed last time. Um, or was that two weeks ago? I'm honestly not able to keep track of it anymore. But uh, the uh, 4118 proposed changes are real bad, and the uh, discussion on whether or not to move forward with those or how to move forward with them is apparently going to be being happening. Like That discussion is going to be happening at City Council on Tuesday morning. So that is Tuesday, September 24th at 10 in the morning. Uh, join us at City Hall in the main room on the third floor. You just go up the elevators after going through security, and uh, you get to the atrium, you turn left, and you follow the crowd of folks into the big room where there's lots of bright lights, uh, lots of air conditioning, and lots of profanity and racial epithets that are going to get thrown around. So be prepared, but show up and support us because... 
uh, we need all out and uh, all hands on deck to make sure that City Hall understands that the proposed changes for 4118 uh, are simply unacceptable and cannot be allowed to move forward. Uh, we'll talk a lot more in depth about this, but like the that ten foot rule is just a a it's it's all preposterous. I mean, all of it's preposterous. We need, yeah. they need to just repeal forty one eighteen. But I mean, the ten foot rule is like it's just this grinding of the grit. Uh, into the wound of saying, hey, you can't go anywhere in L.A. Oh, yeah, and let's just make it even worse by saying, like, you really, even those areas that you thought you could go to, nah, you can't go to those either. Yeah. Um, it's just it's just absolutely despicable. And then the changes in 4118C, ugh, don't even get me started. I, I do um, want to say yeah, that... So again, I do want to say that at least two of the council members are uh, proving fairly movable on this one and not the ones you would yeah. necessarily expect. Like, Bonin has been pretty clear that he does not like this. David Ryu has also said he's not fully on board with it and is actually kind of pissed at Mitch for pulling a fast one on him. Same thing goes with Marquise Harris-Dawson. So there's a good chance we can get this trapped in committee and make sure it never sees the light of day, but that's going to take yeah. pressure. Absolutely. So uh, some other things that are going to be going on next week, uh, as has become tradition, uh, LATU is going to be having their meetings. They've got the uh, they've got their their Hollywood uh, local meeting happening on the 23rd. Uh, that is going to be taking place uh, from 7 to 9 p.m. September 23rd at 6500 Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, 90028. Uh, so that's the, the Hollywood local. Then on the 25th, uh, we've got the Northeast local that's going to be meeting uh, at, at uh, 7 o'clock. So then on Wednesday, the 25th, uh, the Northeast local for Latu is going to be meeting from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Avenue 50 studio. That's at 131 North Avenue 50, 90042. Uh, and then on Thursday, the 26th, uh, there is a ground game meeting, as there is always a ground game meeting. Uh, from 7.30 till around 9-ish at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard. But Latu is going to be meeting at the same time. Uh, their North Hollywood local meets uh, on September 26th. That's a Thursday night from 6.30 to 9 at 5730 Cahuenga Boulevard in North Hollywood, 91601. And then they've also got their East Side local happening from 6.30 to 8.30 that night at 346 South Glass, G-L-E-S-S, Street 90033. And there is the South L.A. local happening again at the same time, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. on Thursday evening at the Southern California Library, 6120 South Vermont Avenue, 90044. So uh, that pretty well wraps it up for the events uh, that are coming up that come to the, the front of my mind uh, for next week. Got anything else? Uh, no, I think that's that's pretty much it. Just, again, everyone, have yourself an amazing strike. And if you listen to this after Friday, you had yourself an amazing strike. Pat yourself Hell on the back yeah. for that. So, as always, if y'all have any events that you want us to publicize, take part in or generally be made aware of or any stories that you want to make sure that we're aware of as well, send us a message through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or send an email to podcast at groundgamela.org. You can follow us on Twitter at GroundGameLA, at Bushido Squirrel, at Christopher Roth, or on Instagram at GroundGameLA. And of course, 
Like and follow the Ground Game LA Facebook page for all of our live streamed content from actions around the city, as well as links from Knock. And of course, you can read the stories from our comrades and sometimes the two of us dabbling a little bit over at Knock.LA. And if you'd like to read the sources that we're citing or quoting for yourself, go ahead and check out the list of articles cited in the episode description on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. Thanks a bunch, y'all. So as we say every week, rise up, fuck that shit. Hell yeah. Thanks, y'all.